Holly felt Doctor Who stiffen, and she moved closer to him. This is the Trap One Podcast. My name is Mark McManus. On this episode, we'll be talking about the Doctor Who audio annuals with my co-host, Denise Sutton. Welcome back, Denise. Thank you for having me back once again, Mark. Hello. No problem at all. Uh, So for anybody who's listened a couple of episodes ago, when I had Chris McKeon on, uh, we're talking about his audio project, The Final Game, and we now have some news for listeners who are following that. You've been cast in the project? I have, yes. I am going to be playing Elizabeth Shaw herself. Excellent, um, which is very Very exciting. happy about that. So, so how did you find the audition process? Um, it was... Uh, it's never easy, is it? Suddenly you're um, on your own, given some lines to read and... Uh, yeah, it was it was interesting because I haven't done anything like that for a while, but uh, not too arduous. And uh, I read for several parts and um, sent them off. And I was actually offered two parts, and so I had to choose which one. And uh, obviously, uh, I went for Liz Shaw. It's a great character, isn't she? She is, yes. And I, I watched Inferno sort of help me decide and think about how I would play her and uh, I mean I hadn't studied her performance so closely before but it's really interesting she can be sort of quite urbane and sophisticated sometimes she can be very incredulous she can be very very fierce when she knows what she's talking about and uh, she's a very very strong female character particularly thinking about the time when she was written and uh, the time she was appearing on television. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think I mentioned this actually when I was talking to Chris. I'm going to be playing Jeremy Thorpe uh, in the production as well, um, which is uh, my performance very much based on the uh, Hugh Grant version that was recently on the uh, Russell T. Davis um, dramatization, A Very English Scandal. Excellent stuff. So Congratulations. Be, uh, thank you very much. Um, and Chris is still looking for somebody to play the master, um, which is the original master, as played by Roger Delgado in the Third Doctor era. Uh, so anybody that fancies to go at that, at that can still audition. Um, yes, please come and channel your inner evil. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yes, everybody's got a little bit inside them. So please, yes, if you if you think you can do it. Then you can contact, should they contact you, Mark? Or? You can um, DM me uh, your details on Twitter. Um, my direct messages are open, so you don't need to follow me or for me to follow you back to send a message, and I can pass the details on to Chris. Or you can email him directly. I don't have his email just to hand, but I'll put it in the show notes, and it's in the show notes to the, the Final Game podcast. Um, and obviously, if you haven't heard that podcast, Chris explains all about the project, how it came about, how it's going to work. Uh, that's still available wherever you get your podcasts. And it's a very interesting listen. It's going to be a big project, but uh, it sounds like it's really coming together. So it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, to working on that. Uh, and especially now, I'll be working with you as well. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you, darling. Theatre, <laughs> darling. Yes, it'll be fabulous. Yeah. Um, it will certainly be interesting to uh, to get it all together. And I've put some feelers out to some other friends who have said that they will help. So thank you very much for that too. Fantastic. So today we are going to be looking at the first two volumes of the audio annuals. So these are collections of stories that are in the old 
Dr. Annuals. We'll talk about the, the stories kind of individually on them, but how have you found these overall? Um, yeah, they're very interesting bunch. I mean, it's not all stories. There's a couple of um, articles as well, yeah. or more kind of uh, thought pieces or explanation pieces about the mystery of Doctor Who, as he is. Um, yeah, there's some lovely, interesting ideas. Um, I like the way some of them obviously go beyond what the programme at the time could have achieved. Mm-hmm in terms of budget and special effects technology. And did you did you read the annuals when you were younger? I had some of them. Um, I think my brother tended to get them more than I did because they were more of a boy thing, I think. I was given, like, the Jackie annual, yeah. <laughs> Bunty and things like that. But, uh, yes, they, uh, they were in the house, and I would have had a sneak read of yeah. some of them, and I had some of my own as well. Yeah, I, I never got all of them, but um, I remember when I was a kid, I'd sort of have a look at kind of car boot sales and, and look in second-hand shops and things like that and pick up the ones that I could. Um, I think you got them all past a certain point, like maybe 1971, 1972 or something like that. Okay, um, that's really impressive. Because, um, I think uh, there was a stage where when I was a teenager and when I was really getting into the programme, you could still find the old annuals for 10p in a jumble sale or something. And sometimes people would buy them for me because they knew I loved the show. So I do actually have the first one. Oh, wow. Somewhere. Well, somewhere. It's in my mum's house. But, yeah. Uh, so I do own that one. but And a few others too. Yeah. I, I do. I will one day probably track them all down uh, just to, for completism and get the full set. Uh, but I hadn't read any of the stories in them for years since I was a kid. I remember kind of pouring over them when I was younger. Um, and a few of them kind of stuck in my mind. But probably not too many of them that, that, that have made it onto the, the first two audio annuals. Uh, so we should say that the stories are read by um, various Doctor Who alumni. Peter Purvis, Annika Wills, Jeffrey Beavers, Matthew Waterhouse and Nicola Bryant. That's right, yes. So kind of representing uh, all the different... Uh, Eras there. Jeffrey Beavers um, was married to Caroline John. Was he? I didn't know that, or if I did, I'd forgotten. Um, yeah, and he was um, the master and keeper of Trapan. Yeah, and I, I, he's, he's done a lot of big finish as well, hasn't he? Yeah, he's. Um, I think he's the regular master in in or one of the regular masters in Big Finish. He, he always plays the sort of uh, the desiccated corpse-like master. Yes, yeah, he's got that sort of slight sibilance to his voice, which is uh, very effective sometimes. Yeah, and really good at the voices as well. It's poetry. It's it's not not an impersonation, but you you get the um, something of the rhythm of John Pertwee's delivery. Uh, I think in his uh, when he, when he's voicing the Doctor in these stories. Yes, yeah, he he does a very good job indeed, and he seems to be enjoying what he's doing too but uh, one revelation was Matthew Waterhouse is actually a very good reader yes. as well and does very good impressions <laughs> including of himself as a younger man <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah so well done for that I, I thought that uh, that was a nice surprise yeah because he did uh, a little bit of that in Big Finish in the Fifth Doctor plays uh, he, he plays the younger Adric um, I find it interesting because in these he does the fourth Doctor and the fifth Doctor stories. Mm, yes. Uh, and he plays the fourth Doctor very deep and sonorous, 
Um, the way sort of Tom Baker did play it towards the end of his uh, reign, he wasn't as uh, he was a bit more serious, wasn't he? In his mm. final season, he's got some of the verbal ticks down very well. Yes, he has. Obviously, he can't match um, he can't match Tom Baker for pitch. No, you know, but. Uh, but yeah, and his Peter Davison is very impressive as well. I thought. Yeah, he plays it like like Davison. He's quite breathless and, and enthusiastic, mm. and, and that kind of thing. It's uh, yeah, he, he definitely gets the uh, the sense of both the doctors. They're different there. Uh, so you mentioned you've got the sort of the essay type ones on them, um, mm. which I think really interesting because it's like the writers are extrapolating what little you know about the Doctor from the TV show. And, you know, kind of making a lot of assumptions. So they, they sort of say things like he's been traveling for millions of years and mm-hmm. he's sort of seen everything and knows everything. And this kind of thing, and he's forgotten where he originally came from. That kind of comes up a couple of times on these, doesn't it? it yes, it does. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting idea. And I think it uh, would have encouraged readers at the time to have their own thoughts about where the Doctor really came from and think about what he says and add some depth to the character without, of course, being canon, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, some of these definitely aren't canon, are they? uh... (laughs) No. (laughs) Although some of them are lovely and quite interesting. Um, There's the one, The Phoenix in the TARDIS, Yes. Read by Annika Wills, which is selling basically Patrick Troughton's doctor to the readers, comparing him to the old doctor. I think the old doctor gets a bit of a rough ride on this, actually. Yeah. uh, Saying things like, um, oh, he's more with it, you know, he's more in control of situations and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, they say he's a bit more. But of course, this was. This was the first time the role had been recast. And so I can imagine they thought that they had some work to do to make sure that everybody was on board. Yeah, they talk about, they say he's, uh, in that one, that he's lived for 900 years. And then he says something like a strange psychological um, event takes place and that rejuvenates him like the phoenix. Yeah, Yeah. it's a psychological storm, wasn't it? Or a physiological storm. And, it, yeah, they call it rejuvenation at that time. Yeah, and uh, yes. he refers to it in, as reincarnation as well, doesn't he, in one of the stories. Yeah, they haven't settled mm. on, on regeneration at that point. Um, but, yeah, so there's, there's Who is Doctor Who? There's the uh, the Phoenix one you mentioned, and then I really like the equations of Doctor Who. Um, oh, yeah. He's on the second uh, <laughs> one, and that's, um, yeah, kind of explaining. Explain more sort of about what the Doctor does than who he is and... Uh, about the TARDIS and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's very much, um, I suppose, like you, uh, like was um, insinuated maybe in the early stories that the, the Doctor had built it. Yes, yeah, that's mentioned a few times. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, again, it's a thought-provoking piece. You can sort of imagine someone sitting on their bed reading about time and space, infinity and eternity and... The greatest human mathematician. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that uh, about three times in it, they say that he's human, they say he's the greatest human mathematician, Mm. and it talks about his human curiosity and his human courage and that kind of thing. 
so yeah, it's very much that he's um, he's this kind of just exceptional human scientist and explorer. Says he must learn all there is to know. Mm. Um, the the language they use as well, I think, when they describe the TARDIS, I've got a little bit here. It says uh, the TARDIS becomes resolved into a looser pattern of atoms and electrons than is familiar in matter on Earth. The new pattern and all it contains is transferred instantaneously to any point in space and any moment in time which the Doctor's settings on his instruments are selected. Uh, I love the the yeah the kind of language and. Yeah, the ideas about how it all works. Yes, more like teleportation than the actual journeys through the space-time vortex. But yeah, Yeah. it's... uh, (laughs) What do I know? I mean, uh, going back to the time and thinking about uh, people who were actually reading it at the time. um, Yeah. I mean, we don't know much more now. (laughs) No. No, that's it. There'd have been very little other material to read to find out more as well. These would have been... Uh, yeah, that time there was the... no Doctor Who Weekly or anything like that. No. Um, I guess even the novelisations probably came a little bit after the early annuals, didn't they? I think they did, yeah. I mean, there was that very early Doctor Who and Daleks book. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, I mean, they, things like that weren't done as a matter of course. There was all the merchandise of course but, mm. uh, uh, so the, uh, the the first first doctor story we get on the first volume is the sons of grek so in both in both of the first doctors he's traveling alone isn't he i don't know if that was a uh, sort of a copyright issue if they didn't want to pay more for the the rights to the the companion characters <clears throat> that's quite possible yes but it's quite interesting to have him travel on his own i think because you haven't got um any of the kind of younger characters to do the the more action-packed things. Mm. Although, uh, what they would have done in this story, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. I mean, the Doctor needs to be on his own in this one, I think. Yeah, so so he arrives in what seems to be a medieval castle. Um, Well, first of all, he switches on the scanner and sees a a roasting pig um, Mm. being carried along. He's he's quite kind of... um, on the mooch for food, the first doctor in these stories, isn't he? He is, yeah, he's motivated by that. (laughs) Um, I think it's something in the first doctor TV stories as well, they always make time for for something to eat, don't they? Uh, But I think it's funny after you get these kind of really lofty essays about his search for knowledge and his his endless wisdom that uh, the first thing he thinks Mm. about when he lands anywhere is is getting something to eat. Well, I mean, having seen the food synthesizers in the TARDIS, I can't yeah. really blame you. You can't live on bacon and egg flavoured Mars bars forever, can you? No, no, it'd be, um, it'd be ready for a change, won't it? Uh, so he, um, he arrives and uh, he's kind of on a, a minstrel's gallery and, and sees the, uh, the eponymous sons of Grek. And one's about to be assassinated by a sinister black-clad figure with a ray gun. So uh, the doctor kind of intervenes uh, and stops the assassination, but then gets blamed for it in, in time-honoured tradition. Yep, time-honoured tradition the, is right, absolutely. The, uh, the assassin disappears and the Doctor is left with the gun. Uh, so the sons of Grek don't believe it, anything about his uh, his claims to be a time and space traveller. Yes, they're quite scornful about the TARDIS, aren't they? Yeah. He's very, I find in, in a lot of the annual stories... He's, uh, he's not really circumspect about telling people about the TARDIS or 
his ability to travel in time and space. He's quite yeah. open about it, uh, more so than uh, the normally get in the, uh, especially the early TV series. Yes, I mean, he's trying to use it as an explanation as to why he's there and uh, yeah. definitely not a murderer. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> so they, they throw him, the, the sons of Greg don't believe him, they throw him in a big pit that they've got. He's uh, thrown into a big pit by a, ma- a bloke called Morag. I mean, that's a bad day, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> and there he finds a lot of sentient giant insects. Uh, so it's a bit like Vortis, isn't it? I guess it's uh, that must have been an, an inspiration, uh, the web. Yes. Uh, because there are some butterfly creatures, but they're not called um, Monoptera, so maybe there was a rights issue there too. Yeah, there's, there's giant butterflies, there's a giant cockroach. Um, there's some turtle-type beings as well. Yeah, the Christians. Mm. Um, and they've survived because because uh, the um, the turtle has uh, brought a sort of a food replicator in under his shell that. Uh, that's, uh, and and the, the doctor says he's really interested in this, and he, he, the first thing you think is he's on the mooch for food again. Uh, but then uh, <laughs> his plan is to turn it into a transmitter to, to summon help from the other Christians, uh, knowing that the sons of Gret will intercept it. So they come dashing down into the pit to see what's going on, and they, they get caught in these nets and tied up uh, while the, uh, the prisoners make good their escape. I thought the ending to this one was really exciting. It was it was almost like something from the new series where the robots are going to throw the TARDIS out of a window. And yep. kind of dashes along after it, jumps up onto the ledge, gets in, and then um, as it's tumbling out of the window, he manages to dematerialise to escape. Yes, that's quite an energetic ending for an old bloke. It is, yeah. <laughs> Imagine he'd need a good long sit down after that but yeah, yeah it's um it was an interesting story also i think it's got a similar theme to galaxy four has it where um you know when he sees the sons of grec and thinks that they seemed fine upstanding young men which they turned out to be not particularly and the um giant cockroaches and spiders and things they were in fact the good guys yeah in this situation so not to judge by appearances. That's uh, yeah. At the end, when they're uh, as they escape, they're celebrating and saying that this um, all the insects are sort of stroking his hair with their mandibles and things like that. <laughs> and he doesn't mind. Yeah, no, he's um, he's fine with it, isn't he? So. He's a citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot, isn't he? So, yeah. Yes. And then we go to the the second Doctor story, which is. The, the King of Golden Death. Yeah. I, mean, I liked that one. I thought, um, interesting idea, and obviously it's one with an educational purpose. Yes, yeah, so you've got the Doctor, Polly and Ben. So it's obviously very early uh, in the second Doctor's run because he hasn't met Jamie yet. Uh, it's presumably sort of just after um, the Power of the Daleks, before the Highlanders. Uh, if you if you're trying to slot them into uh, mm. continuity, I'm not sure that uh, <laughs> that was a major consideration at the time. But uh, yes, quite yeah. possibly. Uh, where they land in the tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, but not long after he's been entombed, it seems. So it's not uh, not it's sort of thousands of years before Howard Carter uncovers the uh, the tomb. Um, I like this one because I've been to Tutankhamun's tomb and I went to Egypt. Uh, so I was uh, thinking, yeah, it's quite quite nice to picture that. Um, the characterisations seem 
even further off than a lot of these stories. Um, all Ben and Polly are interested in is sort of taking some of the treasures out of the, <laughs> the tomb. They're thinking, oh, that must be worth a bit. There's, there's sort of gold masks and things like that. So they want to help themselves. And uh, yeah, I think in, in this and the other second Doctor story, Ben and the Doctor have a very antagonistic relationship, which I don't remember from the TV stories at all. No, I guess not too many of their stories survive. Um, but yes, it does seem that... Uh, well, you, the Doctor is still quite tetchy in this one, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, um, and he's confused. He facilitates between whether it is, in fact, uh, Tutankhamun's tomb or not, taking into account all the information that it comes as it comes in. Yeah. And, uh, yes, I mean, they see all the gold, and I suppose it's a natural instinct to think, well, I could take some of this back to London and be very, very rich indeed. And, of course, the Doctor's not going to be very impressed with that idea. No, he says, you two make me sick. (laughs) Which uh, doesn't seem very second Doctor, does it? (laughs) (laughs) But Ben, I mean, he... uh, Ben was out of line, but Ben does redeem himself. And he, um, when he's told that he resembles the Boy King, then, of course, he, uh, he feels affinity with him and doesn't want to steal anything from the tomb after all. Yeah, because some some tomb robbers arrive uh, and and gets to keep history on track. They decide that they need to uh, to dissuade them from breaking in. So they uh, Ben puts the, a golden mask on, scare away the tomb robbers, uh, and there's some kind of landslide. So it keeps the keeps the tomb intact for, for Howard Carter in the in the 1920s to turn up. So the reason why that was the one tomb that was not robbed was because of the Doctor Ben and Polly. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, nice story that one, and a pure historical, mm. uh, which is a couple of in in, uh, in these actually, isn't it? Uh, then we go to the third Doctor with Dark Intruders, which is a nice unit story. You've got the Brigadier Joe Grant, um, and on location in. Uh, yeah, in the Pacific, not too Pacific. far from Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the, the budget wouldn't have quite stretched to that back in the day. But, you know, Joe got a bit of a holiday on an aircraft carrier, didn't she, in this one? So. Yeah, they're on an American aircraft carrier, I think, to, to pick up a, uh, a, a shuttle that's been to Mars and has just returned. Uh, yes. Sort of shades of ambassadors of death. Yeah, and of course, a lot of things that were happening at that time as well, because the space program was happening. More people were being sent to the moon, people were being sent up, and their capsules were coming down, usually in water. So yeah. everybody would have seen news footage of these things actually happening. Yeah, there's um, a nice level yeah. of detail, isn't there, about what happens when it yeah. lands and they put a rubber ring around it and then um, tow it kind of aboard the ship. Um, but uh, it's quite like Quatermass as well, isn't it? The, the yeah, it is very Quatermass experiment, yes. The two astronauts that have gone up, a British one and an American one, have, have come back and there's something strange and zombie-like about them. Uh, so uh, it's not long before strange things start happening and uh, one of the uh, the doctors on the ship has been attacked and uh, somebody tries to steal the doctor's vibrobank Oh, a vibro bank. I'm not, was never quite sure what exactly that did, but you know, I think I want one. (laughs) Yeah. 
it, it seems to perform a lot of the functions that the sonic screwdriver does now because he can sort of analyze things with it and uh, but it's never really mm. described is it it's just described as a metal object and a unique instrument yeah, yes that's um it's small enough for somebody just to try and carry off um but then yeah it seems to be able to do all kinds of um sort of laser probing and that kind of thing so uh, but yeah, I thought it was a, a nice story for the third doctor and the brigadier. That, yep, and uh, the doctor, um, they figure out who is going to be the next person that the uh, people who have possessed the astronauts is going to is going to be attacked, who the next person is. And the doctor takes his place. Yeah. And uh, of course, he's he's attacked. But you could, and you can just imagine, you know, how how John Pertwee performs when he's being attacked by anything, the yes. sort of faces that he pulls, and everything like that. Um, and it turns out to be some old some old enemies from, I guess, kind of an unseen adventure. Um, yes, uh, the Minoans from from Minos. Mm. So yeah, that's a nice idea because it's it's something you'd. Getting the series probably around that time. I think I always think the first two doctors, they never really know anything when they turn up. They meet alien races for the first time, and then from the third doctor onwards, he suddenly got quite a good knowledge of other races. Yeah. Uh, you know, when he meets the Santarans in the Time War, he's already aware of them and that kind of thing. Yeah, and he picked up the Venusian Aikido, and he amuses people with stories about. Aliens that communicate using just their eyebrows and things yes, like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it suddenly seemed like uh, he had um, he had a breadth of knowledge that he didn't previously possess in, in his first two incarnations, mm, uh, or that he didn't want to share for some reason. Yeah, yeah. maybe it's evidence of season six B. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, so that that idea. It, yeah, it didn't seem like something you'd get in stories for the first two Doctors, but this one, he's already aware of them. He's already um, battled them, in fact, to the extent that um, any of their race would know who he was. So when they get aboard the ship and they hear about the Doctor being there, that's when they, uh, they kind of go on the offensive and try and get their hands on his fibro-bank instrument. But, uh, yeah, I think it was one of the better stories. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that one a lot, and it was... Of its time, and it was atmospheric, yeah. After that, we go to the, the fourth Doctor with Conundrum, uh, who is travelling with Adric and K9. Yep, that was from the 1982 album, and yeah. it's annual, sorry, and it starts with the fourth Doctor and Adric playing 3D chess, like in Star Trek. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think I vaguely remember this because this is a, an annual that I had. Yeah, it's nice that because um, the fourth doctor probably apart the seventh doctor as well. You see playing chess, don't you? But the fourth doctor would often be playing chess with K nine. Yeah, why does it's a Cambridge story it is now? There's one where it starts where they're playing chess. Mm, yes, he played with K nine. I think when. Um, with Leela as well, there was a Leela story and uh, possibly also a Romana story. Yeah, uh, so you do sort of associate him as one that, that plays chess in the TARDIS control room between adventures. Uh, and then um, something strange happens. It's all set in the TARDIS, this one, isn't it? Which is uh, unusual. Yeah. And it's of a time when we were seeing a little bit more of the TARDIS interior. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a 
another TARDIS appears, doesn't it, in a in a style a bit like Logopolis? Yes, yes, they get a space distress call, and so they materialise, and when they open the scanner, they realise they're inside um, another control room of the TARDIS, and the Doctor knows it's his TARDIS because there's his emergency scarf. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny, this one. Yeah, I like that idea about the emergency. So he chases off through the TARDIS after the thief, uh, and he can just sort of see the end of the scarf disappearing around corners and things, can't he? Uh, and then he eventually gives up and just goes, I'll keep the scarf. Um, and then realises he's actually been sort of chasing an echo of himself. Yes. Um, and this is what the whole kind of the, the, the mystery hinges on, isn't it? That uh, they've become caught in a kind of loop. Mm-hmm. Yes, and again, it introduces a scientific concept, um, the Mobius strip. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, they actually talk about the Doctor's quarters, which is not something that we ever see no. in the actual show. Um, I mean, I remember in uh, when Amy and Rory ask the Doctor if he even has a bedroom, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like this one. I think it was written by someone who actually has a good sense of humour because there's mm. some there's some good funny moments in this and who also knows Doctor Who very well yeah. and um, the scientific ideas of the day like a little bit of recursion and mm. rearranging topography and things you sort of wonder was was Christopher H. Bidman secretly writing an annual story yeah it, it definitely seems influenced by him doesn't it Mm. I mean, they mentioned the image translator as well, which was uh, a feature of Full Circle. Yeah. Yeah, they seem to be more, uh, a little bit more aligned with the series at this point. Uh, Whereas Mm. they just kind of invent things for the TARDIS, don't they? Um, One of them, uh, I think it's one of the stories from the second volume, they they talk about a safety rail. Uh, I think it's the second Doctor story on that. They, um, when they're going to land... The doctor says, right, everybody hang on to the safety rail. And you think, where's the safety rail in the TARDIS? <laughs> um, so they just kind of make up things in the TARDIS or, or things like the vibro bank or whatever that, uh, that the doctor has about his person. Whereas well, just I seemed... bet he really had one of those anyway. Yeah. It just uh, <laughs> never made it on screen. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice to think. Um, so I suppose that the next story, the penalty, is probably in the doctor's bedroom as well. It doesn't explicitly say... Uh, but we've got the uh, the fifth doctor has come down with uh, a virus, so he's uh, he's got kind of bedridden while Tegan and Nissa are looking after him. Yeah, and Tegan and Nissa have a cup of coffee at the start, and uh, sort of wonder where t- where Nissa got her taste for caffeine from. But yeah. <laughs> it was nice to see. And again, they're in the doctor's room this time. Yeah, I don't know if it explicitly says that, does it? But you kind of assume that it must be his quarters. Hmm. Because usually they just dump people in Tegan's bed, wouldn't they? But yeah. Uh, and the uh, so after the kind of the introduction, which I thought it was a bit odd actually to to have that. You've got the the, the um, description of the doctor lying delirious on his bed while Tegan is to watch over him, and then you go into the doctor's mind and he's having all these adventures. You'd think um, they would have saved that as a twist, that it wasn't real, that it was all happening in his mind. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in his, in his unconscious mind, he's having... First of all, he, he meets loads of kind of old companions and things like that, doesn't he? The sort of 
None of them are named, but you get the idea that it's the Brigadier. Oh, yes, yeah, Jamie. it's a small blonde, it's... Yeah, a military you know. man and a, a, a Scotsman and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, Again, Matthew Waterhouse doing some impressions. Yeah. Um, and But then they all turn on him. Um, and then he just kind of runs through loads of unseen adventures, but he keeps losing, doesn't he? So he's uh, he's trying to foil an invasion, but his plan doesn't work. And then the, the aliens set up on him, and then he's in a different place. And then eventually yeah. being chased by every alien he's ever met. Um, and uh, there's a really nice picture in the in the annual for this one, which I, I tweeted out earlier, where he's being chased by all these things. Uh, and one of them looks like the outline of the giant robot, uh, from from robot. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's like it's pretty close enough you can tell what it is, but not uh, but it's silhouetted and not close enough that they had to pay uh, any royalties <laughs> to use it. Yeah, and it reminded me a bit of um, the dream that Tegan has on Diva Loca in Kinder. Yes, it's it's got that kind of atmosphere to it. Yeah, just kind of creeping dread, isn't there? And and. It's, yeah, things are things are getting worse for him. Uh, and then when he wakes up, he thinks uh, that nightmares are the kind of the price you pay for having a full life. So uh, this yes. is uh, this is him paid up for, for having such an exciting life. Uh, and it's then, also interesting because obviously you know a lot of young kids they do get terrible nightmares as well. So it's yeah, so, so it's probably something that might have been written with. The, that in mind. That, yeah, that even even Doctor Who has them. Mm. Yes, I, I actually wrote down what it said because I thought it was rather nice. Warped realization of half memories. Don't be afraid of nightmares. They're the penalty for an untroubled life. And then we go to the the sixth Doctor and Perry uh, in another, yeah. another pure historical. Uh, the real Harrowood. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with this legend. I think I'd heard the name, but no, I, I wasn't familiar with it either. But it was an interesting idea. Yeah, so some it's just set just after the Battle of Hastings. Um, and some Saxons are, are looking for shelter. And they, they turn up at a house and the Doctor and Perry are already there, having become lost from the TARDIS. And the kind of the, the Saxons are making plans and things like that about um, how they're going to repel the Normans, whether they're going to team up with the, uh, the the Danish, is it, I think, to, uh, to, to come back and conquer London. Um, mm. And then one of them kind of gives away the fact that the leader of these Saxons is actually King Harold, that he didn't really die at the Battle of Hastings. He just got his uh, sort of his, his, his mum and his sister, or his mum and his wife, to um, to misidentify another corpse. His mum and his uh, mistress, yeah, yeah, the, the mother of his children. Yeah, that's what he mm. says. Yeah, um, and that he's, he plans to sort of uh, to to kind of go abroad and then come back and retake the country. Um, and then there's a really nice bit where the, the Normans turn up. Um, and the doctor gets a little toy robot out of his pocket, a little kind of back separated yeah. thing, and sends it out, and that scares them away because they think it's witchcraft or a demon or something like that. Yes, and uh, <laughs> obviously um, Perry is a little surprised that the doctor's got one of those in his pocket. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what have you got in your pockets? Yeah. He's a, he's a bit friendlier in this one than he is in, in the other Six Doctor story, mm. that in, in the other volume that we'll get to, isn't he? But, uh, and then he, uh, yeah. he sort of encourages Harold to become this kind of outlaw who uh, who kind of keeps the resistance alive and um, harries the Normans during their, yeah. their occupation. So he's not interfering in history because if uh, he had managed to rise up and defeat William the Conqueror, then the whole of life in uh, Britain would have been very, very different for several yeah. hundred years. But uh, he decided to keep things on the existing timeline. I mean, this guy would live out his years, have a good life and become a legend. Yeah. Yeah, a nice tale. Again, one with an educational element. But, uh, I mean, it's funny that he uses a robot. To... Yeah. <laughs> Is that a robot in your pocket or are you just pleased yeah. to see me? <laughs> uh, and then we get to uh, the second volume, uh, which is the one that came out this year. Uh, so we've got the same people reading it. I really like Peter Purvis's first Doctor, and he does that yeah. a bit for Big Finish he as does, well. He does a very good impression of him. And this one, the Doctor arrives. It's got it's got peril in Mechanistria. So and it's from 1966. Yeah, so towards the end of uh, of the first Doctor's tenure. Um, and it, this one, because uh, it, it got quite a long opening sequence in the TARDIS that I thought was quite strange. And this one kind of goes down the tack of the TARDIS being quite delicate, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it says he's, he's been damaged after an adventure with the Daleks. Yeah, he's escaped from Scarrow, but the TARDIS vibrated too much on the way out. Um, mm. And it's um, scuppered the, the directional circuits or something like that. And he spends a lot of story kind of worrying about how delicate it is. Um, and then he, uh, so he, so he lands the TARDIS, looks at the view screen, which is blank. This kind of thing, so I don't know what that is. And then, uh, yes, he, he has something to eat and goes to sleep. And then, uh, yeah, all this kind of stuff that you would never see on TV. He goes around switching off all the instruments in the TARDIS apart from the life support, mm. wakes up in the morning, turns them all back on again. And then he realizes the scanner was only blank because it had been nighttime when he landed. Um, <laughs> So it's all just kind of doesn't lead anywhere. It's just this kind of uh, meandering opening, isn't it, before he steps out onto this metallic world. Well, back in the day, of course. I mean, people don't do it so much now, but uh, people of, like my mum's generation, absolutely paranoid about turning everything off at night and unplugging the TV in case yeah. there's a thunderstorm and all of that stuff. So I suppose makes good sense that the doctor would do all of that stuff as well. Yeah. And also decides deciding to sleep on a problem. I mean, that's always a wise move, but uh, wouldn't have made the best entertainment no. in the TV show. <laughs> no. My mum was a bit like that as well. Yeah, about um, unplugging washing machines and things like that at night. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. Uh, so he arrives on this metallic world. Um, and he's immediately set up on by a robot called a Grooker. Um, yep. And the writer's really trying to kind of uh, give you the idea how threatening this is. It says it would have made the Daleks look like a child's toy. Uh, yeah, in your face, Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think doesn't think they ever got the rights to the Daleks, did they? In the uh, in the annuals, so it's probably trying to say, well, we'll we'll go one better, make something mm. even more threatening. 
Um, I thought it was quite funny because the Daleks were a popular toy around this time as well, weren't they? So saying it made them look like yeah. a child's toy was probably a little bit kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but luckily he's, he's rescued by some mechanics uh, just before the, the Grooker can get him. Uh, they've got these flying devices called Sauras uh, with um, kind of tentacles on them, so they, they lift him up and away to this uh, this kind of place where they all live communally. Uh, there's a real what I really like here is this this because uh, it's such a mechanized world that uh, the idea of all all these mechanics have gone a bit deaf because of the constant noise of machinery. Yeah, so they all have to shout at each other. They all shout all the time, but it says some of them have become good at lip reading. Hmm. Uh, I thought it was a nice bit of world building that that was uh, it was a nice touch. Um, but then he he sort of realizes that. Uh, these are not the kind of the, the dominant race on the planet. Um, he's quite judgmental, isn't he? He's, um, he, he surmises that they're kind of uh, ignorant savages and witless mm. slaves. Um, and uh, having established that he thinks they're slaves, he doesn't think to free them or anything. He just thinks, well, if I can find out who their masters are, maybe they can help me fix the TARDIS. She's <laughs> uh, a little bit more self-serving than, uh, than you expect from the Doctor, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it comes out with the point, which is machines should always be the servants of men, because it seemed that, uh, you know, it was the machines that had the upper hand, certainly against this part of the population of the planet. So. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he starts telling them about the TARDIS. Um, he says it was built millions of years ago by, by sort of great minds, um, which sort of contradicts some of the other... Uh, annual things that have it that he built it. Mm. Um, but then he realised he's given away far too much. Um, and so the uh, the Corads, who are the these mechanics, they call for the wise ones, who are the uh, the um, they're not the leaders because they think the machines are in charge, but they're kind of the next rung up the ladder, aren't they? Mm. Um, but in the meantime. Uh, Draco, Draco, I think he's called, is the mm. sort of leader of the Corrads. He kind of has an idea that uh, maybe they could all escape in the TARDIS because the doctors told him about it. Um, and he's kind of got this vague notion because the doctors described time travel that maybe, uh, but he can't quite articulate it that they could travel yeah. back in time. That was an interesting idea as well. I mean, the doctor was talking about things, you know, this is a metal world, it's the only world they know, and he's been talking about trees and forests and rivers and things like that and uh, it's like I'm trying to grasp what you're talking about but I'm not quite there but I've heard similar things before yeah yeah so. the, the doctor's quite this um again they talk about how far he's traveled and how much he knows but he's incredulous at the idea that there's no grass or trees on this planet isn't he he thinks it's just stupidity um which I think he's, he's Further away, he kind of demeans the Corads because uh, he thinks of them as uh, ignorant savages. He thinks they just don't know about the trees that they must be somewhere. Mm. Well, maybe he's a little bit frustrated because obviously they're intelligent people. They all work. They've all got tool belts. You know, they're mechanics. They're practical people who can figure things out, and yet they're they're in this position. They're little more than slaves. It's, yeah. Um, so then, um, just as they're kind of talking over this plan that Draco and some of his men might go back in time to avert the machines taking over, 
Uh, it's a bit like Terminator, actually, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it is in that way. I wonder. I, that. I wonder if the young James Cameron read this annual. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was a big influence on him. <laughs> Uh, So a wise one called Beran turns up and basically overhears the plot. Um, And he reveals that it's not, in fact, that the machines are in charge of both the wise ones and the the mechanics, but that the wise ones are the machines that have had kind of human brains put into them. Um, Which kind of makes me think is a a bit of a forerunner to the Cybermen, really, aren't they? Very definitely, yes. The idea... Um, I mean, we've got the Daleks, of course, with the mutated creature inside the uh, armoured shell. And then, yeah, yeah, brains in human brains in machines, definitely. They haven't had their emotions removed or anything like that, but they've got the the plans for kind of universal domination uh, that you'd get from the Daleks or the Cybermen. Um, And the Doctor's quite staggered by this, and you think... You, you know, like you have met other races like this quite recently, and even mentioned the Daleks twice in this story already. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so Draco who goes from being very subservient uh, once he learns this to grabbing the gun off Baron, um, and uh, they they jump in the Sora to fly towards the TARDIS. And then I thought this was kind of a strange scene that Draco says, "I I won't kill you, so I want you to jump overboard to your death." But if you don't, I'll shoot you. And you think like if you can't say I won't kill you, and then <laughs> give us an ultimatum where or I'll kill you. Um, but Perrin jumps overboard anyway. Uh, I don't think he thinks through the logic of the uh, of the threat. Um, and then the the doctor takes Draco to the TARDIS, um, and he's a bit worried at first because he thinks I don't really know anything about this guy. I'm going to take him into the TARDIS. But then he's reassured by the fact that he wants to change history, <laughs> um, which again, it's, you can tell it's kind of early days, can't you? For although even the first Doctor was very against changing history generally, wasn't he? Um, yes, he was. Yeah. yeah, he wouldn't let uh, Barbara do too much in the Aztecs. Yeah, I suppose there's always that contradiction in Doctor Who, isn't it? When whenever he take he goes into Earth's history, he says he can't change anything, uh, but when he lands on any other planet. Other than Earth, he's quite happy to incite a revolution or mm. kind of... Uh, <laughs> Unless it's a fixed point in time, whatever one of those is. Yeah. Yes. It comes point. to saving Adric, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that would be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, so he takes Draco back in time 10 million years, which seems like too far to me. Yeah, that seems like quite a long way. Mm. There might not even be intelligent life there yet that he can dissuade from building machines. So they arrive and um, and there's still grass and trees, so that's good enough for Draco. He leaves Beren's gun behind uh, so that he doesn't take any weapons into this kind of young virgin planet. And then once the Doctor takes off again, the the gun's disappeared, so he takes it that, uh, that they have managed to... To avert the uh, the creation of uh, of mechanistria. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice idea as well, isn't it? You know. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a time travel trick thing that, uh, like in Back to the Future, where uh, Marty's picture is vanishing and things like that. You know. Yeah, yeah this idea that um, that things change in the present uh, as things are altered in the past. 
Yeah, it's not something you get too much of in Doctor Who, is it? Uh, um, no, you get a few little things, like in Father's Day, the fact that um, Rose was there when her father died, and so she becomes part of the narrative that Jackie tells the young Rose about the blonde girl who was with him as he died and things like yeah. that. So. I suppose um, Kaz Dan in the Christmas Carol, uh, a Christmas Carol rather, uh, mm. is probably the, the, the biggest example. Uh, another bit I, I thought was quite funny in this is when, when Baron turns up, meets the Doctor and Draco, he refers to the planet as Korad. And then a couple of sentences mm. later, he says, Draco here probably still calls it Korad. <laughs> think, yeah, so but we've you, renamed it. Yeah, we've renamed it Mechanistria. You just think, mm. a minute ago, you were calling it Korad as well. Um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, yeah. that's like, you know, what, you've renamed your house Magnolia Cottage. Yeah. Congratulations, <laughs> you know. Um, but, yeah, it's so inconsistent that he, uh, he'd forgotten himself for a moment. Uh, but, no, I, I really like the story. There's some great ideas in it. Um, but just, yeah, some, some weird stuff as well. Uh, and then we, we told, they're all in order of, of doctors, we go to the Sour mm. Note, again, read by Annika Wills. Uh, and again, it's second Doctor, Ben and Polly, no Jamie. Yep. Um, again, Ben and the Doctor have this kind of slightly argumentative relationship because Ben decides he's not getting enough exercise above the ta- uh, aboard the TARDIS, uh, even though they're constantly running for their lives in every, uh, <laughs> every adventure. But, uh, so he decides next planet he lands on, he's going to go for a jog, uh, which for some reason really annoys Doctor Who. So he says, right then, I'll just land somewhere and you can go for a run. <laughs> um, and this is the one with the safety rail. Yeah, I've got this in my notes. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> he says, right, hang on to the safety rail while we have a, <laughs> while we have a landing. Um, and then, yeah, this is it's kind of an, uh, feels like an under, underdeveloped story because they land on this really strange world with a two-dimensional landscape. There's kind of mountains, but they're all two-dimensional. And it, it reminds Ben of sort of models he used to make as a kid. Um, but you sort of never find out why the planet looks like that or anything. Um, ben runs off for his jog, and then Doctor Kinds have, have second thoughts um, about the wisdom of this, and they he and Polly follow. So they go around the mountain, which is just a flat kind of, I guess like a stage flat of a of a mountain. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it would have been. Yeah, um, and they go around the back of it and find a big arena where there's a giant metal grasshopper. Uh, there's no sign of Ben, and when Doctor Who throws a stone, the grasshopper sort of swoops down and eats it. So they realise that the, the metal grasshopper must have eaten Ben. Um, and then they realise that the, the grasshopper is sort of guarding um, a hatch in the ground. Uh, and some musical notes come out of it, which control the grasshopper, and it, it starts moving around and things like that. Um, well, I don't know what they were on when they wrote this one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, so the doctor. I mean, I know it was the sixties and all. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor's got his recorder with him, uh, but they don't call it a recorder at any point, do they? they just call it his musical pipe. Mm. Um, and he can emulate the sounds and, and control these. So it's like a Pied Piper sort of situation where he and Polly are luring this giant metal grasshopper back to the TARDIS, where he's got some instruments that will discern whether Ben is in the belly of the uh, of the grasshopper. Uh, at which point they arrive back at the TARDIS to find that Ben's already got back from his run and uh, never went anywhere near the grasshopper or, or saw it. 
and they just rock up with this big metal grass yeah. <laughs> okay um and then they they get in the tardis the grasshopper attacks the tardis having apparently received the command to do so and they take off so you never find out who built this strange world what who was in the bunker um, what dark secret were they protecting in the bunker that the grasshopper was there to defend them against? It's it's very odd, isn't it? Mm, yes, that's the side of the Doctor's life that you don't often see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, his sort of curiosity just kind of uh, was absent that day, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's got some cool bits in it, but it leaves you wondering what, what on earth was going on on that planet. And in the writer's head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seems like we need quite a short one, just a couple of pages. Just uh, mm. um, should mention actually, there's a book I really, really like called "The Annual Years" by Paul Mars, um, which is a look at all of the Doctor Who annuals, um, and he's he's got quite a lot of um, research in it as well. I think like the BBC archives, like the correspondence that went between the Doctor Who production office and world distributors. Uh, who were based in Manchester. Um, uh, you, you were just all the writers were kind of these in-house writers that would just um, just kind of pitch these stories and write them, and then they would post them to the BBC. Um, and various producers over the years would make notes on them or totally rule them out and send them back or suggest changes and things. So uh, it's a really interesting book and very entertaining. It's very witty about the stories in them and stuff as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Um... There's some really, really nice stories, and uh, yeah, there's some that are just a bit bizarre, yeah. <laughs> as we have seen. <laughs> uh, the next one uh, to, to talk about is The Scorched Earth. Definitely not a classic, I would say. No, not really a classic at all. From 1975 annual, um, Jeffrey Bieber's reading again, The Planet Variant 3. With the, the third Doctor and Sarah arriving... Uh, what, and it seems to be like a sort of an 18th century sort of agrarian society, isn't it? Mm, yes. And they think, and they come across a field, and they think that it's uh, possibly just been because back in the day they used to burn the stubble off when they'd when they ploughed when they'd harvested a crop, and the remaining stubble would be burnt. Yeah. And they thought that had happened on this planet as well, but. I think that's the most amazingly clunky piece of dialogue on any of these stories is when Sarah says um, I was friends with an agricultural correspondent on the newspaper Mm. and that's how I came by this information (laughs) Yeah, not just general observation and zooming around the uh, countryside in an open-topped car and like that uh, But it's something you you would put kind of in the text, isn't it? Oh, that's how Sarah came by this information. Rather than have it as dialogue, I thought it was an incredibly clunky thing Mm. to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it was general knowledge, wasn't it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know this because I have existed in England for a period of years. I'm not quite sure if they were 70s or 80s, but, you know, I was there, I saw this stuff. She's a city slicker, though, isn't she, I think? She is, yeah. um... (laughs) Um, So there's been a recent storm and the thunder and lightning have terrified the locals. Um, And now the crops are failing because all all the fields are scorched and everything. Um, They get attacked by an archer and and kind of an armed mob, uh, which uh, the 
the doctor basically kind of persuades them that he can help with the crops. Mm. So he, he, he gets, uh, it's, um, Marshall Zona is, is the leader of these guys, and he says, that, oh, you've got till nightfall. Um, and this is quite third doctor, isn't it? Having uh, He sets up a lab out of the TARDIS and um, starts kind of analysing the soil and, and trying different things. Yep, and nothing seems to be working, and then lunch is, dinner is delivered. Yeah. It's just a little bit of bread and cheese. And Sarah says, ooh, I wish it was fish and chips. And suddenly, the doctor <laughs> gets all inspired. Yeah. She says, with lots of salt and vinegar. And mm. the doctor goes, right. So he goes to get some salt and tries that. Um, and salt cures the, uh, the, the, the land. Yeah. Which, um, I'm a bit of a gardener, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that isn't right but yeah. maybe maybe it's right on variant three yeah that, that salt might get rid of the uh the the blight on the crops but mm. it, it comes with its own problems when it comes to uh to putting it in the ground where you're trying to grow plants yeah. to live on yeah. you'd have to treat the soil again with something else later yeah. to counteract the effect yeah um and uh, the doctor explains how they can get salt water from the sea to treat the the land mm. Uh, but they're a bit scared of the sea because there's strange creatures in it that have no arms or legs. <laughs> yes. Um, strange, you know, they evolved to uh, grow crops and things and they've never thought of just like... Fishing, well, I'm, yeah. I <laughs> hmm, wonder what that tastes like, yeah. you know. I did but, think the doctor just assumes that he's talking about fish because he says, well, we call these creatures fish. Um, mm. But it could be anything in there. This is an alien planet. The only yeah. description is that they don't have arms or legs. They could be these huge kind of hydras or uh, kind of anything out there. And the yeah. doctor just goes, there's nothing to worry about. So he could have sent a lot of these people to their deaths. Yeah, I mean, they could have been like 20 metres long, you know. Yeah. Huge teeth. But... He could have been megadons or anything, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so as you say, definitely not a classic of the genre. No. No, definitely not. Um, and um, you know sometimes in these stories as well you get uh, different names for spaceships they call they get called all sorts of things and just flying craft in general so the one in the last story was a Sora mm-hmm. and this one sky carts from yeah. the skies yeah <laughs> uh, that's what they call the TARDIS isn't it the, the, the mm. sky cart yeah <laughs> uh, and then the fourth Doctor story uh, we've got the fourth Doctor, uh, along with Sarah Jane, Harry and the Brigadier, mm. um, which is nice because I don't think Harry crops up in too many of the annuals, does he? He doesn't crop up much with Tom Baker either, does he? No. After the first, after season twelve. So. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's uh, it. Was nice that the the Doctor and Sarah Jane arrived back on Earth. So it's after Harry's finished travelling with them. Mm. They come back to Unit. Um, and they've just been on the planet Dumok, which is described as very kind of dark and dingy. So they're supposed yep. to be back on Earth. But um, Sarah Jane's feeling a bit peaky. Um, yeah, there was quite nice suspense, I think, with this. Um, obviously, something's up with Sarah, but whatever could it be? Yeah, she, um, she she's a bit kind of tired and stuff. And then when she steps out at Unit HQ into the sunlight, she, she sort of flinches from it a bit. Um so the Doctor goes off to see the Brigadier while um, Harry and Sarah Jane um, spend some time together. Um, but she's acting strangely still. 
and uh, even when she she goes to the canteen um, and kind of goes into a trance, her, her eyes glow blue, um, which you'd think would be a huge warning sign for Harry. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? I mean, he, he's familiar with the strange life yeah. they lead. He needs to go and get the doctor right now. Um, but he just sort of snaps out of it and he just sort of, sort of forgets about it, doesn't he? Um, and then uh, he, I think eventually he does go to say to the doctor, um, so Jane's acting a bit weird, and the doctor has the most terrible line. <laughs> oh, he does. Do you want to say it? I, I think you should say it, yeah. Women are notoriously moody and Sarah Jane is no exception. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a shocking thing to hear the doctor say. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's just very dismissive, isn't he? Which I think when um, when you think that uh, how easily the doctor spotted the fake Sarah Jane in the android invasion um, when she wasn't acting anywhere nearly as strange as this. Um, yeah, it shows that he's having a bit of an off day, doesn't it, in terms of his... Well, <laughs> maybe it does. I mean... Uh... These things aren't written with any great depth no. a lot of the time, are they? You know, they're fun, but uh, maybe it's just that he's waiting for more information and he doesn't want to alarm anybody until he knows all the facts. Yeah. I still think Harry should have mentioned the fact that her eyes had been glowing blue earlier on in the day. but Yeah. And, of course, <laughs> Harry's a doctor. He should have confined her to sick bay, couldn't he? Yes. Yeah. Definitely glowing blue eyes would uh, mm. should have aroused some more suspicions. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting little tale. I thought Theon's dialogue was absolutely dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose you deserve some sort of explanation for all this. Yeah. Know? And he's got the classic alien dialogue of, um, he says something about your Earth months, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's proper kind of B-movie stuff with that, isn't it? The Doctor and Harry are then very ungallant, aren't they? By They won't even help her up. Mm. left to the brigadier to be the gentleman. Poor Sarah. She yeah. wouldn't have liked that at all. No, no. Being possessed by a man like that, no. Yeah. Uh, so then we go to the planet of fear with the fifth doctor and Adric. Yes, uh, again read by Matthew Waterhouse, doing yeah. very good Peter Davison. Yeah, he does, definitely. The planet of fear is such a Doctor Who title. It's one that you sort of almost can't believe hasn't been used in the mm. TV series. Yes, and also um, there's no Nissa and Tegan in this story, so that's a bit strange. Yeah, yeah, you wonder where they are, because there isn't really a time with the Fifth Doctor and Adric, is there? No, there isn't, no. Must have just dropped them off somewhere. To do some shopping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they, they arrive on the planet Ixos 4, which the Doctor's heard some disturbing stories about. And they haven't long landed before Edric is terrified by, by um, giant insects. So he's a huge centipede and a giant, mm-hmm. uh, giant snail that, that leaves its trail all over the TARDIS. Um, but the doctor says they're not there, it's all in your head. Um, but then they're captured by some giant earwigs, which the doctor says, well, these are real. <laughs> which is, uh, <laughs> it's not really very helpful, is it? I no. think. Adric is having a rough time there, but, you know, his his own planet was a foresty kind of a world, wasn't it? So you'd think he'd be a bit more... Yeah, and there was was those big spiders, wasn't there? Mm. Um, In that one as well. 
Yeah, you think he, he wouldn't be as terrified. But it turns out. Although that, in one of the big finished stories, he is um, also terrified of spiders again. Ah, right. I don't think I've heard that one. Oh, is it cobwebs? Um, it's the one, one in the box set. I think it was the one with um, iterations of I and. Um, was, it, was it called Phantasmagoria or something like that? Where there's all like. Um, different groups of people and they're all basically how each individual member of the TARDIS crew perceives the other four. So it's like other groups of four people. Yeah, it isn't, it isn't called Phantasmagoria. I think there is a Fifth Doctor one story yeah. called that. It's, um, yeah, Iterations of I and I've got this box set as well. Mm. And I can't think what it was. Um, yeah. Yeah, but, that's um, a great story though, isn't it? I really like it. Because mm. uh, Tegan sees the Doctor as um, this kind of colonial aggressor doesn't he doesn't she yeah uh, it's quite interesting yeah um no i haven't listened to that one for ages um it probably came about four or five years ago now i need to uh, listen to that again i think that would be the first one that adric came back for yeah i think you're right i, I think he resisted for a long time but uh, yeah. yes, back in the fold now very definitely by the sound of things yeah yeah he, he, he does quite a few he, he's got the um that team back together, haven't they, with um, Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton and Peter Davison? Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of taps into that Frontios thing a little bit, doesn't it? Well, I suppose the kind of giant earwigs is reminiscent of Frontios. Um, mm. In that one, Turlu's got that sort of race memory of the tractators, so he's kind of uh, scared of them already. Mm. Um, yes, wide eyed and drooling. I'm very, very scared. Yeah, and Adric, um, it turns out, has um, a similar kind of race fear of giant centipedes and snails. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it I seemed. Mean, although, if you go back to full circle, he's evolved from a marsh creature, which was evolved from uh, the spiders that lay their eggs in the river fruits. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, mm. So, I guess, yeah, maybe the, uh, the centipedes were. Um, sort of uh, predators of the spiders that he's descended from, maybe. Could be. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. The, the, the Doctor seems unaffected by, by the planet, which um, makes you see your greatest fears. He can communicate telepathically with these giant earwigs who um, they, they take the Doctor and Adric to what they think is a cave where they're safe, but they're actually still just standing in the forest. Um, which I thought was quite a funny idea that <laughs> they'd be standing there thinking they're in a cave um, it's like they're kind of back to reality episode of uh, Red Dwarf you know where they're all kind of running around and they think they're in a car and stuff oh yeah, yeah. that's right mm. um, but uh, the, the doctor's able to communicate with them telepathically get everybody back to the TARDIS and then um, fit them with some inhibitors so that they uh, no longer see their fears uh, and the uh, the earwigs can escape the planet as well. And then right at the end, Adric sort of says, well, if you see great spheres, what did you see? Um, but the Doctor says, ah, that would be telling. Um, yes, which, so uh, he could have been seeing something truly horrendous indeed. Yeah, but we just kind couldn't of... couldn't let on. Yeah, or just kind of rash, could rationalise it away. Because um, the third Doctor, his fear was, uh, in, in the mind of evil, was fire, wasn't it? Yes, that was um, aftershock from uh, what he, the destruction of the world that he'd seen in Inferno. Yeah, 
Uh, so you make you wonder if it was still something like that or if um, it's something traumatic that's happened more recently for him. Uh, maybe lots of telescopes that uh, he could fall off or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hard to know, isn't it? I yeah. mean, uh, I don't actually have any phobias as such. I mean, I've got things that I'm naturally wary of but mm. I'm not sure what I'd see in that forest what about you? No I don't have anything that um, I class as a phobia that would um, like my wife's very arachnophobic um, like she would um, you know with spiders um, kind of shakes and uh, you know just get very very frightened Well I mean that's a that's a pretty common one I mean I do have yeah. a friend who won't hear this podcast I'm pretty sure but it's uh, scared of used tea bags you can chase them around the kitchen with a used right. tea bag and they don't <laughs> like that at all but, uh. that's phenomenal <laughs> there's bound to be a name for it because there's names for kind of every mm. obscure phobia isn't there but uh, yeah that is an odd one <laughs> planet of the tea bags <laughs> yeah um, and then we go to the, uh, the sixth doctor story and this is the very last one isn't it yeah. Um, we're looking at, yeah. Nicola Bryant reading again. I hadn't actually until um, until I heard these stories that she's narrated. I hadn't heard a lot of her natural voice and her natural accent. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very good, isn't it? She, it's the way she switches between her, her normal English accent and her American accent for Perry. Yes, yeah, it is. Um, oh, she, she does it a lot for Big Finish as well. She does the American um, but yeah, just kind of switching instantly. Um, and this is the final annual story that was ever published as well. It's the last story in the last one that was made. Okay. Was the Were there no Sylvester McCoy annuals? No. Um, the I think the 1986 one was the final one. Okay, um, I did so, not know that. Yeah, they resurrected them in the 90s um, in a different in the yearbooks. Um, I think. Was there four of those? Maybe five? Um, there were, I think, basically made by the Doctor Who magazine people. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were kind of... I mean, by that point, I was 17, so, you know, I'd sort of moved a little bit beyond uh, yeah. needing to have the annuals. I still read the magazine, I think, but I... Uh... Yeah, I'd have been 11 or 12, I was still probably... Uh, the target demographic. <laughs> mm. uh, but I remember being disappointed when they stopped. Uh, I remember kind of the year that there wasn't one. I was kind of looking everywhere for it uh, before realising that they'd, uh, they weren't making them anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the last story is Radio Waves, uh, which, again, it's not, not a Stone Cold classic, is it? It's got its moments, I think. I mean, it's obviously was written by somebody who knew the characters of Perry and uh, Colin Baker's Doctor very well. I mean, there's some nice, um, nice uh, exchanges between them. Yeah, and it's it, yeah, it gets that kind of um, argumentative side to the relationship, doesn't it? Um, yeah. The uh, yeah, the Doctor's quite. Um, a bit, I don't know what the word is, when they're in the uh, the car on the way and um, he sort of starts complaining, he says, you never believe me, you never listen to me, you've got no faith in me. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of sounded a bit like a teenager. Yeah. 
so uh, yeah, so this, the the doctor's called in by the police because uh, something strange has happened where loads of people have um, just kind of walked towards the Houses of Parliament and just stood staring at the building for a while uh, and then wandered off. And it was as if they were in a trance, yeah. hypnotised. So the doctor sort of called in by Scotland Yard uh, to investigate it. Um, and he realises that it's either mass hysteria or hypnotism and he kind of settles for hypnotism and um, thinks it might be ra- kind of someone being hypnotised through the radio. Um, which he makes a lot of intuitive leaps quite quickly, I think, doesn't he? He does, yeah. And I think um wouldn't be so easy these days. Um, no. Yeah. No, it's a dozen different radio stations, you know. Yeah, he says that <laughs> it's what everybody does when they're on their own in the house or in the car all day. Yeah. Um yeah, I think he says uh, how could we ever find it? There must be at least a dozen different radio stations. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and he has that weird rant about the newspapers as well, doesn't he? That um, that they're only interested in, in London or capital cities and they, they just call everything else the provinces, which must mm. have been old-fashioned terminology even in the, in, even in the 80s um, <laughs> to, call, uh, to call places away from London the provinces. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things that it, it, you make such a, bit, a big deal of it. You think it's going to be pertinent later on, but it isn't. Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, very much isn't. Yeah. I mean, the idea of um, lots of people suddenly going to to a certain place and just waiting—that was reminded me of the Christmas invasion. Yeah, yeah, that um, that kind of mass mass hypnosis. Uh, I suppose a little bit like Last of the Time Lords as well. Um, the, the kind of idea of sending a signal out uh, that controls people. Yeah. Um, and it, as it turns out, it's the master in this one as well, isn't it? Mm. Who's uh, based himself in the, the post office tower. Yep. A magnet for megalomaniacs everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's the ideal supervillain base, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, apart from the, I imagine it's a bit expensive to rent these days, but yes. Yeah, he's uh, so the renovating part of it, and he's he's based himself in there and, and hypnotised workmen to act as his guards and things, doesn't he? Um, and then yeah, it's just a kind of a strange ending because uh, the doctor turns up with a couple of armed policemen and tells him to switch the machine off because a lot a lot of people have uh, turned up at Parliament again for the, the state opening of Parliament because the Queen's going to be there uh, and all the, the parts of the members of the royal family and, uh, and things like that, and they've all turned up with weapons to. Uh, just club them to death, apparently. Um, and the doctor just says, turn the machine off. <laughs> so he does. Um, and at the same time, kind of uh, teleports away and escapes. So, yeah, it seems like a bit of a a bit of an odd ending. Because the master doesn't mm. even really explain what his plan is. Because when Perry says, oh, you know, you can't kill MPs and the royal family, uh, the master says, well, you've done more harm to this country than I could ever do. And Word. He, yeah. <laughs> but he, the, and you think, oh, that can't be his plan, then maybe he's going to do something else. But apparently it was. He did just want to see um, all these people clubbed to death. The way it's described, the, the doctor has turned the machine off. Um, oh, you see, he says something like, stop what you're doing. And, and the master actually says, well, can I, should I turn the machine off? And the doctor looks at it for him a bit, looks at him for a bit, and then goes, yeah. Uh, he turns it <laughs> off. <laughs> And then and then sort of transport transmats away. 
Um, so he's still at liberty. Um, yeah, I found it quite quite an odd ending. Quite mm, anticlimactic. Yeah, I mean. Master wasn't really bothered. Doctor wasn't really bothered. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Queen wasn't bothered at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, and having built up all this stuff about the opening of Parliament being this grand occasion that everybody goes out to see, it then finishes well. It was just another state opening. Everybody knew mm. the Queen didn't even write the speech herself. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or you think, um, like you were saying earlier about, you know, given the unlimited budget, they could have gone for something a bit more spectacular there. Uh, you know, maybe a, a face-off between the Doctor and the Master in Parliament or something. Mm, that would be interesting, sort of precluding trial of a Time Lord a bit. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't one that stood out for me really, that one. No, I think it was um, Nicola Bryant read it very well, and like I say, some of the mm. dialogue was nice, but some of it was uh, random, as yeah. you say. <laughs> the stuff about the newspapers and uh, yeah, you wonder if that was just kind of the writer just kind of uh, mm. kind of airing his own views. Um, yeah, and the um, description of the state opening of Parliament—it was something of an idealised sort of view when you think that it's written in the middle of uh, Margaret Thatcher's reign yeah. it's all like oh yes uh, all very important people and they're all wearing their best clothes and they're all going to see the Queen yeah yeah. well the way they kept describing uh, the Queen's crown and the jewels and the finery made it think um, mm. that the plan was actually going to be to steal the crown jewels or something rather than uh, kill everybody yeah or plan for the master what, what would he have gained from it Mm. It's not like he could have just sort of stepped in and taken over the country, you know, to still have had the police and the army. and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he decided to take a more um, conventional route, sort of 20 years later. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and stand for election, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, um, overall, I mean, they're, they're great to listen to. I've, I've been listening to them, to them on my commute to and from work. Because um, one's, I've only got quite a short commute, about a quarter of an hour, so one story is about the right, about the right length of time. Uh, so yeah, they're they're great to have in the car. Uh, well, I've been uh, sitting out in the garden and listening to them, and it's been rather nice. Or well, they're good accompaniment to gardening. It's it's made a change. Stories that are, with one or two exceptions, the ones I could remember, they're totally unfamiliar, but familiar yeah. characters, but a very different different twist on them indeed yeah they're not, not stories that people really talk about are they you know, I think everyone's put a lot of people who grew up with Doctor will have childhood memories of them but um, they're not referred to or discussed very much even though they've existed in a way that a lot of the actual TV stories haven't been able to do um, yeah they've, they were kind of ephemeral in their way people would read them once or twice and then they'd put them away and then they get next year's annuals and they'd sit together on a shelf. But uh, it's nice that they're getting a new lease of life. Yeah, definitely. Um, when I read Paul Mars book a couple of years ago, it kind of made me go back to a few of them and, uh, and read them. Uh, but I think that's the only real kind of book that that discusses them in any any depth. Um, you never see them kind of referred to in, in any of the other reference guides or anything like that. No, no, well, they are strictly non-canon, of course. 
yeah um but yeah i mean with fine. everything else that's going on and how much confusion would there be if uh, <laughs> <laughs> if these were all part of the mix as well yeah um but yeah i mean i i guess really the in terms of spin-off fiction obviously very early on and then it wasn't until i guess maybe uh the, the 90s you regularly got the, the missing adventures and, and kind of original stories other than you know, outside of the annuals mm. kind of ahead of just your fan your fan fiction yeah um but in terms of what was what was widely available are quite quite ahead of their time i guess in that uh, in that sense i suppose with the comics from quite early on as well wasn't there um, mm. so doing tv action and all that kind of things yeah mm. But, uh, no, it's been uh, been nice to listen to these, and hopefully, I mean, there's plenty of material. Hopefully, they'll they'll keep releasing one of these a year. Uh, I'll definitely keep collecting them. That would be nice, actually. Yeah, it would be um, good to see some more of the stories. There must be some more good ones out there. Yeah, there's um, yeah, there's a few that I can kind of remember that stuck in my mind when I was a kid that uh, I'd like to like to see uh, told. Yeah. Uh, and they've got a really good lineup of actors to tell them as well. So maybe they'll bring a few more in as well. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, maybe some of the doctors, uh, you know, because they're all kind of working in big finish and things like that. They're not adverse to some audio work. So maybe get interesting to get Peter Davison, Colin Baker in. Yeah, possibly, Tom or um, maybe Louise Jameson. Although she seems to be a very busy lady, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Playing Miss Marple on the stage and everything. Yeah. Yeah, she still finds time for the Tom Baker um, series on Big Finish, though, so that's, uh, that's good to see. So thank you very much for joining me today, Denise. Uh, it's been a pleasure discussing these audio annuals with you, and we'll have you back on soon. Thank you very much. It's been lots of fun. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening at home. Join me next time. Jason Miller will be back on the podcast, and we will be discussing Borrowed Time, uh, the re-release of the 11th Doctor novel by Naomi Alderman. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you.